Good morning, church family. Good morning. Well, it is so good to be back with you. And together, we are back with Jonah, aren't we? Let's turn in our Old Testament to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3 and the first, first little bit of chapter 4 we'll be looking at uh, this morning. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you, when we were last with Jonah... We saw him used of God to preach a message that brought about the greatest gospel harvest that is recorded in Scripture. And that, that sounds like hyperbole, but it is not. Just let the enormity of that sink in. Imagine a gospel message being proclaimed in Coeur d'Alene, Everyone who hears it who doesn't know Jesus already believes God and repents, but it keeps going. It goes to Post Falls, and then it goes to Rathrum, and then it goes to Athol, and then it goes over to Spokane, and the suburbs of that city. It's an, it's a, it's an enormous thing that we read of. In the book of Jonah, the miracle of conversion. Hundreds of thousands of people from least to greatest in ancient Iraq believed God and repented of their sins. Nothing comparable to that had ever happened. Nothing comparable to that has happened since. And we might think at that point in Jonah's narrative, well, surely Jonah is the greatest among the prophets. But, but the thing of it is, is we don't remember him that way, do we? I mean, if we were to go around the room right now, and we won't, but if we were, and we'd, hey, who, who in, in, in your opinion, who is the greatest among the prophets, the greatest of the Bible's preachers? And you, you know, people would say, well, Isaiah or, or Jeremiah or maybe Hosea. Maybe uh, Peter, Paul, John, the apostles, something like this. But I'm guessing nobody would mention Jonah. And yet Jonah was used of God to preach a message that resulted in the conversion of an entire metro area. And this was before there were metro areas. In, in the middle of an evil regime, Israel's primary Enemy, why, why is Jonah not remembered so well? Well, it's because his story doesn't end at chapter 3, does it? It keeps going. And you know, once you're saved, once I'm saved, our story keeps going too. I wonder what's happening in your story these days. Jonah's reaction to God's miraculous work through his word in Nineveh, reveals something equally incomprehensible to us. Rather than praising God for his saving mercy toward the people of Nineveh, Jonah burns with anger. Uh, Jonah is a man of God who hates what his God has done. Now just think about that. Can, can you imagine such a person, a person of God, who hates what God has done. Something God has allowed. 
Maybe God has done the very thing we've prayed against. And you see, before we dismiss Jonah as some sort of hopelessly messed up person and move on, we do well this morning to ask the Lord for grace to examine our own hearts. There's a bit of Jonah in all of us. And if you deny it, you prove the point. (laughs) I'm just saying. Let's boldly ask God as David once did, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Because there are a lot of really angry hearts among Christians these days. Have you noticed that? God's own people today tend to get angry when he doesn't do what we expect. When he allows what we don't want him to allow. The very things we've prayed against at times. And so the the church today must wrestle with this same question that God asked Jonah. "Is Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Well, let's pick up where we left off. That's always a good thing to do. Um, Verse 10 of Jonah 3 tells us what happened in ancient Nineveh upon hearing a message from the living God. The people repented and were told that God saw this repentance. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Notice the tenderness of the Lord toward his own. We'll come back to that next week, perhaps. But before we deal with Jonah, let's remember that his narrative, first and foremost, is about Jonah's God, our God. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, God is described in a way that seems kind of startling to us. Let's look at it again. God saw the Ninevites' works, their works of repentance, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So that this miracle of conversion in Nineveh is presented to us as a case of God changing his mind. He said that Nineveh would be destroyed within 40 days, and Jonah preached that message faithfully hoping for Nineveh's destruction. Don't forget that. But now, in response to Nineveh's belief and repentance, the the people receive mercy from God, not severe judgment. And we can't help but wonder, does God change his mind? I mean, does God declare to us his intent to judge sin, all sin, Uh, but then later decide he's been wrong about certain people. Is that what prayer is about, do you suppose? We, We pray so that we somehow get God to change his mind. 
Well, God's own answer to that question is a very emphatic no. No. For I am the Lord, I do not change, he says through the prophet Malachi. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Our God is perfect and he's infinite in all of his perfections. He's he's immutable, unchanging because he has no need to change, no cause to change, not ever. Think of the wonderful truths that are ours to rest in because God is immutable. He's unchanging. When he says at the cross through the work of his son, it is finished. Your sin has been judged. That's the last word. When he says to you in his word, look, uh, my steadfast love is never ceasing. That will never change. When God says to us in, what is it, First Peter chapter 1, the, the saved are, are kept by the power of God. Aren't you glad you don't keep your salvation? God does, and he never changes. Oh, how we need the unchangeable God. So, 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 so what do we make of verses like Jonah 3.10 then? It's especially jarring if you read it in, in the, um, the King James Version. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. God repenting of evil, what, what is this? We, we need to stop and sort this through. Well, the best answer we're going to get is always from God himself in his word. Listen to what God had disclosed about himself through uh, his prophets concerning his dealings with the nations. Jeremiah 18, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. You see, see, God didn't change his mind with respect to Nineveh at all. God is by nature merciful to all who cry out to him in repentance and faith. That will never change. So what we see here in Jonah 3.10 and elsewhere in the Old Testament is what is sometimes referred to as anthropomorphic language, man-centered language, infinite God. We're just saying of the indescribable God, infinite, indescribable God, nonetheless describes himself in ways that finite human beings like us can understand. It looked to Jonah, and perhaps even to the Ninevites, as if God has ch- had changed his mind when he showed them mercy. The reality is what? In light of who God is, in light of God's nature, he acted as he always said he would act in response to belief and repentance. Jonah's anger actually relates to the fact that he knows God hasn't changed. That's why he's so upset. The blessing of Abraham was always to be extended to the nations outside Israel. God shows mercy 
to whom he shows mercy. Jonah even prayed this, didn't he, in chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord. And God acts according to his unchanging, perfect nature, always, in all that he does. Let me ask you something. Do you, do you look at the circumstances in your life and in this world that way? God always acts according to his perfect, unchanging nature. And God is by nature merciful to all who cry out to him in repentance and faith. Are you crying out to him? in repentance and faith? Have you believed the lie that that's not for you? That you're outside the reach of God's mercy? I pray it encourages your heart this morning, friend, to be reminded that God has not changed a bit. Nor will he ever. It's you who need to change. We'll come back to that. The scriptures actually refer to God's eternal judgment of the wicked as his strange work. Did you know that? Isaiah 28, 21. Don't look it up now. That would be rude. But later in your free time, look it up. Condemnation is a necessary yet unusual foreign work of God. Meaning what? God does not relish the thought of pouring out his wrath on sinners in some sadistic sense. Though God will judge, and God who is holy must judge sin. Listen to Ezekiel 18. God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. You see, condemnation is the necessary response of a holy God to unrepentant sinners. But it brings no pleasure to God. Jesus said it this way, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's delight is to forgive sinners, not forsake sinners. Do you believe this about God? Is this the God you present to others, especially those people whose sin looks different from yours? Those people whose sin to you seems so much more visible and egregious than yours? See, the deal with Jonah He's got his beak bent that God is showing mercy to people like the Ninevites who were outwardly um, a mess with respect to holiness. All the while, what's going on with Jonah? He's a mess inwardly. His filth is just in a different location. And I fear there are some Christians today who think of the gospel and perhaps even share the gospel in the same manner Jonah did. Not merely warning of God's wrath, which we must, but strongly desiring to see God's wrath carried out against those people. Though those people are made in God's image. We too can be guilty of preaching the warning of God's condemnation as if we would delight in the condemnation 
of those people. And I'm not going to give examples of that. But suffice it to say that that is not the heart of God at all. Jesus' own words in John's gospel shout this to us. Why did God not send his son into the world to condemn the world? Because the world's already condemned. They surely don't need it from us. Well, Jonah needs to learn this, doesn't he? Jonah must learn that he serves the God who says, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. I will have my people, God says to Jonah. It's not your concern to decide who you think they ought to be. You're as undeserving as those people you despise so much. And here's the sobering thing for us church folk. Jonah's behavior springs up from sin that has been simmering in his heart the whole time he's been serving God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Jonah hates what God has done. It infuriates him. And the language here in verse 1 is meant to, to shock us. It's shocking that he's, he's not just a little bit miffed. He's, he's so furious, he wants to die. So here is Jonah, a man of God, but he feels that God has truly done him wrong, that God has actually done evil to him. And you say, well, how messed up is that? Hopefully somewhere back in Israel, there are a group of people praying for Jonah, right? Well, can you imagine pouting in hot anger with a strong sense that God has actually done you wrong? God should not have allowed this to happen in my life. God should not have led those people to this church. I mean, I preferred not liking them from a distance to, to having to love them up close and personal. Do you realize that happens even with respect to discord among believers? Do you realize Christians sometimes have discord, disagreements, and, and Fred gets uh, insulted at one church, uh, Barney done him wrong, and so this is a Flintstones thing. And so, and then he, he, goes, he goes off to another church, right? And Fred says, oh, I've forgiven Barney. But I sure pray he never comes back here. <laughs> and you see that? We laugh at that. At the same time, we realize, good heavens, I, I think maybe I've done that. I want us to consider two root sins that really help us understand Jonah's anger. Why is he so mad? Look at verse 2. We're making tremendous progress, aren't we? Verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was, this not, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? I mean, just, just imagine the enormity of this, saying to God, I told you this would happen. Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. Now we know why he ran. 
For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. See, Jonah's prayer reveals that he's not mad because he thinks God changed his mind. Jonah is angry because our immutable, our unchanging God responded in the way he always responds to believing repenting people who cry out to him. This is the very thing Jonah did not want to have happen. And so he ran from his commission the first time. Notice the the, the preciousness of his prayer. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. This is a very orthodox prayer. It's doctrinally sound, theologically proper. Everything's lined up the way it ought to be, except for the heart of the person praying it. Jonah quotes almost directly from the Torah, God's word through Moses, um, Exodus 34 in particular. And, And Jonah probably has taught that passage many times to others back in Israel. He certainly prayed that passage when interceding for his own nation, his countrymen in Israel. But here's the elephant in the room. And if you've not been listening thus far, start now. Knowledge about God is no guarantee of maturity in God's people. Did you realize this? Knowledge about God is no guarantee of maturity in God's people. Just because we know facts about God, the right facts about God, doesn't mean we're all that mature yet as God's people. So as we sit in our study groups and we meet with our theology pals and we we listen to this sermon and that sermon from this guy and that other guy, we we do well to ask ourselves from time to time, is is God's truth changing my life? As as I take in all of this, and and that's what we want to be doing. But is it changing my heart? Is God's truth changing the way I think and act toward other people? People not like me? Even those people? Jonah has completely forgotten or ignored the context of Exodus 34. God was graciously giving the Ten Commandments to Moses a second time. Why? Because it was a runaway bestseller? And they had to print another one? No, you know that. His chosen people, Israel, had started worshiping a golden calf before Moses even got off Mount Sinai. And so Moses pleaded with God to spare his people when they deserved judgment. They're idolaters. They're adulterers. And Moses intercedes, though, doesn't he? He pleads with God to show mercy. By contrast, Jonah, Israel's own prophet, relishes the thought of a people made in God's image being annihilated. 
What a contrast. So now he's sulking. Because those people are getting the same mercy that us people receive. And keep on receiving on an ongoing basis from God. If, if you read um, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, as was suggested, did anybody actually do that? A couple of you? Okay. Well, we'll hope for three in the next service. That'll be five. That's good. That's good. How can you not be content with that? But you, you, you find that in, in, in Luke 15, right? Uh, one of the many parables of Jesus, and I, and I trust if you, if you read through and get, got, just got reacquainted with the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, you notice that Jonah actually has now played the part of both sons in his narrative. Jonah's like the prodigal who, who flees from his father's best and ends up hopeless and hellbound. Uh, you know, a whale's belly works as well as a pig pen, right? Um, and now Jonah is the second prodigal in Jesus' parable. He, he's like the older brother who got steaming mad because his dirtbag little brother received a hero's welcome when he finally came back home. Jonah's angry, just like the older brother was angry. Remember what that older brother said in his anger? Dad, lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Uh-oh. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Notice the repetition in Luke 15. Of, you know, I, I served. I, I never. He's, he has the same virus Jonah has. Listen. Knowing about God is no guarantee of maturity in God's people. And how many of you know serving God is no measure of maturity in God's people? Jonah's got all of this stuff going while he's serving God. While he's at the pinnacle by human measure and heaven's measure of his prophetic ministry. Notice in Jonah 4, too, the emphasis on the word I. I said, I fled, I know. At the core of Jonah's anger is self. At the core of Jonah's anger is self. This is not to do with what God has done. It's to do with what's going on in Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? Is the core of your displeasure with God's providence in your life really to do with God? Or is it to do with something going on within you? Jonah thinks too highly of himself. That's pride. Jonah thinks too little of others compared to himself. That's prejudice. And how many of you know pride and prejudice often linger in those who know and serve God? How do I know that? Well, it isn't just because I've read Jonah, as you have. It's because I have to look in the mirror every morning. And so do you. Jonah obeyed. He went to Nineveh. Jonah served. He, he preached the message exactly as God gave it to him. Everything is great. 
except all the stuff that's not. All the while, he's got this hidden sin in his own heart. And listen, when you've got hidden sin in your heart, you can end up making all the right moves for God with all the wrong motives. And it's very possible that among us today, some can relate to making all the right moves, yet with all the wrong motives. We've we've brought a toxic mindset of pride and prejudice right into our outward obedience to God. I'll serve, but it's got to work out my way. This ministry isn't working out the way I pictured it. This this isn't how I envisioned it at all. And so I'm mad. I'm disgruntled. We quickly forget, do we not, that kingdom work is God's work, not not our work. We're, We're the servants. He's the sovereign master. I want us to look just briefly uh, at the, the toxic mindset that is behind Jonah's anger. Let's just squeeze these two uh, root sins of pride and prejudice a little bit. Jonah, as we've seen before, is an ardent nationalist, isn't he? I mean, he thinks Israel is first among the nations, uh, which is really a misunderstanding of God's promises to, to Israel. Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, pointing all of the nations to God. Israel was not to comprise a people who looked down their noses at everyone else. But they did. And God's blessings to Israel were were given to enable her to be used of God to reach the nations. A light unto the Gentiles, Isaiah says. Remember, that was the promise God gave to Abraham that that through uh, his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And yet Jonah, like his countrymen back in Israel, had turned that high privilege of grace into a pro-Israel, anti-everybody-else mindset. Can you imagine such a thing? God's people so quickly believe they are entitled to his blessing. What's the reality? The reality is that God's people are the blessed but undeserving recipients of his mercy and his grace. Grace and mercy, by definition, are undeserved. And if there's a caution to us at all, it may include this, that patriotism can easily turn into this sort of nationalistic pride that contorts our understanding of the kingdom of God, distorts the gospel that we present to others. And I, I, I sometimes wonder how much of the anger among so many Christians in America these days relates to this very thing. We, we, we've got a strong sense about how things ought to be politically and how things ought to be socially and culturally. And then when God allows something else, something we don't want, we're mostly just mad. So, th- so, so th- those living in darkness 
look around for the Christians and they say, hey, where are God's people? Oh, they're the angry ones. You can spot them quite easily. They're all red in the face. And our focus isn't so much on growing the kingdom of God, but fixing the kingdom of America. Are you hearing this? Because I hear it among us frequently. And we've got the priority backward. Listen, church, can we still rejoice if the kingdom of God grows, but the kingdom of America keeps declining? I pray that is not the case. But where is our priority? And, and, and for some Christians, the honest answer would have to be no. That would have been Jonah's answer. Lord, I just would like to die. I can't fathom this playing out in a way different from what I've pictured in my head. Well, Jonah, your head just got barfed out of a whale. Our, 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 I mean, this is like a massive disconnect, right? Well, while you're still laughing, let me point this out. Jonah's nationalistic pride has an ugly twin, personal pride. Jonah's a successful prophet back in Israel. He's a rock star. And he very much wants to go back to Israel as the hero who rightly prophesied Nineveh's destruction. Just picture in your mind the ticker tape parade that would be held for the prophet who, forget about him running away the first time, history wouldn't remember that. The prophet who comes back home having accurately prophesied the destruction of Israel's mortal enemy. The Ninevites. Oh, that'd be a party, wouldn't it? And don't you think Jonah's already thinking about that? Thinking about what he might say? I'd like to thank my friends and my family. <laughs> that sort of thing. The school of the prophets will name a conference room after Jonah. I mean, that's for sure. Maybe more. Instead, what's going to happen? Well, he's going to go back to Israel and he, with the dreadful news that the enemies of God's people have been spared, even though he put all of his energy into prophesying against it. Remember that word overthrow from chapter 3. Double meaning. Jonah was hoping for the meaning that meant destruction. He's not going to be a hero when he goes home. He's going to be hated. Anybody want to sign up to be hated? Anybody? No. Jonah prefers to serve God so long as the outcome works for Jonah. Okay, God, I'll preach to your glory, but I'm, I'm quietly expecting to be glorified as well. I, I'll serve you, Lord, but I'd, I'd sure like the result to be what I'm picturing. God's servants today sometimes do the equivalent of photobombing God, don't you think? We, we serve with great gusto so long as somehow we end up in the picture. Well, the background's fine. How would we know if that's happening? 
Well, do we, do we serve for the admiration of others or solely for the pleasure of God? You don't think your pastor gets confronted with that from time to time? Do we become bitter when God uses, blesses someone else's ministry in the way we pictured our ministry being blessed or used? Are we more concerned about our public performance than our private devotion? There's always the danger of these things being practical and personal. Well, Jonah's prejudice then flows out of this nationalistic pride and this personal pride that he's been harboring in his heart again all the while he's serving the Lord. Jonah is incensed that God saves a people who oppose Israel. And he's incensed because those people are not worthy in his mind, forgetting that he and his countrymen are no less worthy. Well, what are we to, to learn from all of this, do you suppose? Is, is there a takeaway? Hopefully it's, it's been obvious. God's people desperately need his grace, his transforming grace, just as those apart from God desperately need his saving grace. You see, Jonah is going to have to learn what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea had to learn. Remember Hosea? Remember his commission? Jonah's going to have to learn what Peter and Paul and John, the apostles, had to learn. The, the, the way up in God's kingdom is to go down in humility as did our king for us. Notice that Jonah's case of pride and prejudice is actually quite acute. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Think, think about what he's saying. A world in which God forgives even Israel's enemies, uh, those people, is not a world Jonah wants to live in. A, a world in which Jonah cannot be the star prophet. A, a, a world in which obedience to God not only keeps him out of the photo, but makes him despised and rejected by his own people. That's just not a world he wants to live in. Well, we're going in a direction now, aren't we? You perked up when you heard despised and rejected. Well, for now, we'll have to leave Jonah pouting outside the great city. But let me just say in closing, we ought not leave him there uh, without remembering another prophet outside another city of great importance to God. Jonah is a type of Christ, remember? As he is resurrected from the belly of that whale. But here's the thing. As Jonah sits sulking and mad outside Nineveh, he's also the antitype of Christ. God's perfect prophet, 
You see the Lord Jesus sitting outside Jerusalem, weeping over the proud and prejudiced hearts of his countrymen. What a, what a contrast that is. We're meant to notice that. And as we leave Jonah sulking, how, how can we not think of our king who, who, whose response to sinners was not unrelenting anger, but tearful sorrow. Father, forgive them. They, they know not what they do. And, and a willingness to humble himself, to be despised and to be rejected by an apostate people so that he might die on that cross for all whom the Father has given to him. Not one will be lost. What grace and what mercy. We dare not think of Jonah without thinking of Jesus. So we see in the conversion of Nineveh, God's invitation to anyone among us right now who desperately needs their sin forgiven. And, and you wonder if somehow there is a new economy now where there are, are people so vile that, that they're outside the reach of God's mercy. And you imagine maybe you're such a person. Let me tell you, our God is immutable. He never changes. His mercy endures forever. Amen. So you must turn to Christ. It's, it's not God who needs to change, friend. It's you. And it can only happen through repentance and faith in the work of Christ. So will you not turn from your sin and trust in the one who lived with neither pride nor prejudice, but instead went to that cross and took upon himself the wrath of God for all of yours and all of mine? Are you believing in Christ, repenting toward God of your sin? And you know, we see in a messed up, mixed bag of a prophet like Jonah that God's elect people need his ongoing grace as much as those people we're tempted to despise need saving grace. I trust we see this now. Our need for saving grace is met in Christ. How many of you know our need for transforming grace is met in Christ as well? Abide in me. Remain in me, Jesus says. You'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do... You've read ahead. We need this Jesus who died for us and rose to life for us and sends his spirit into his people to relentlessly train us away from our pride and our prejudice. And his aim is to do that among us today. Are, are, are we listening to the Spirit today? Is there pride and prejudice being dragged into your service for the King? Or maybe a better way to say that might be, is it, is it right 
for you to be angry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your tenderness toward your own. We see your tenderness in full display in your interactions with your prophet Jonah. Lord, I pray that in tenderness and strength you would draw sinners here to yourself. Jesus, that you would do that work that only you can do. Lord, that you would bring about belief and repentance among us in this place. And Lord, I pray that among your people, Lord, would we have ears to hear your heart for the lost and also your heart to change us. Lord, we rejoice that you have promised not to make us a people who merely look holy, who merely go through the motions while harboring secret sins in our hearts, but Lord, you have promised to make us holy through and through. May you find us soft and shapeable in your hands, we pray.